about uh, vision loss, start off with a little bit of how to use the slit lamp, some basic, just basic eye exam. Feel free to um, you know, tune out if you already know it. So for the basic eye evaluation, you want to start with the pertinent history, age, gender, chief complaint, what's going on, history of present illness. A lot of it's the same as a general medicine H&P. Um, for ophthalmology exams, diabetes and hypertension is really key to know. Diabetes causes a lot of disease in the eye. Blood pressure can also lead to a lot of disease in the eye. Those are two really important diseases to know. Is it yes, no for both of them? Past surgical history. What kind of surgeries have they had? Ocular history. Have they had cataract surgery? In the, have they had cataract surgery in the past? Has the, have they had retina surgery in the past? Um, one good thing is for the past uh, couple months, um, we've been using the iQuest system. We have this system called iQuest. So all of our notes are actually embedded within Quest, too. So you can actually see, you can read our chicken scratch and kind of see what we're talking about. So that helps out. Uh, systemic meds are important, but more, more important is eye meds. What drops are they taking? And in terms of the exam, we have our own set of vital signs, um, the eye vital signs. And these are something that are nice to report to your consultant. One is the vision. And vision, when you check vision, you always want to check them with their glasses on or with their contacts on. If you check vision without, if you check my vision without my contacts with my glasses, it's 2400. So I'll get a report, there's a 31-year-old male, 2400 OU in both eyes, what do we do? And then put on glasses, he's 2020. So you want to check with pinholes, or, uh, if they forgot their glasses, as a lot of people do, check with pinhole. Um, another test you can actually do is called the pinhole near. And that's a good estimate of the macular function test. Macular function test just tells you how well the retina is doing. So what you do in a pinhole near is you hold one of those pinholes up, you keep your reading card 14 inches away, and then you ask the patient to read. And that typically correlates well with the distance vision, too. Um, but sometimes the eye chart's not working in the ED, so, you know. Um, ch check pupils, check reactivity. Uh, you know, do they have an afferent pupillary defect? If they have an afferent pupillary defect, it immediately tells you there's a problem either with the optic nerve or there's a dense macular problem. So afferent pupillary defect, and that's just a swinging flashlight test. Check for a Marcus gun pupil. Um, intraocular pressure, you don't have to worry about it too much. One thing is just to get in the habit of using, unless it's a ruptured globe, using your finger and gently just palpating the eye. And you can tell if it's soft, medium, or hard just by that. Confrontational visual fields are, also, are always very helpful, especially when detecting a homonymous hemianopia. And then extraocular movements in case there's a palsy. Yes, sir. I'm Doctor. just hoping that you can go over in second grade detail what after pupillary defect and work is going to are. Sure. Because it's kind of like we speak Italian, but you're speaking <laughs> Spanish. <laughs> overlap. Good question. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, so the afferent pupillary defect, in the, and I wish I would have brought a slide on that, but um, it's also known in layman, it's the same as the Marcus gun pupil. It's known in layman's as the, um, as, as the uh, swinging flashlight test. So basically, uh, let's say you, you, know, you have a patient and you shine light. You're looking at a patient, you have their right eye and their left eye. You shine light into the right eye and the right eye goes from big to small. It constricts, which is the normally expected reaction. Then you move that light, and you don't have to really swing it. There's no, our, um, our attendings like to joke that there's no, you don't really have to swing. You can just move it across the nose. It's okay. <laughs> you don't have to swing it. It still does the same thing. Um, when you shine it in the left eye, if the pupil goes from small to big, that means you know that that pupil, meaning the left 
eye is getting less light. And that immediately tells you that the optic nerve is functioning suboptimally. So, and then what you do is you go back again from, from you start at the left eye again, you go, you shine light at the left eye. Let's say the left eye goes big to small, and then the right eye goes big to small. Well, that tells you that the right eye is doing fine, because the right eye is uh, reacting in comparison to the left eye, which is the eye that first got it. So essentially, the second eye to, the, the eye you're testing is the second eye to get the light. That's how you test an afferent pupillary defect. And if you say there's an APD, the optical people just go crazy. They're like, you are awesome. I, don't, I just wanted you to define it better. Oh, yeah, for sure. And feel free to interrupt me. Yes, Dr. Langdorf. Yeah, so the uh, next question is, what are all the things that can cause an APD? Or at least, because my sense is, yeah, now the nerve's not working. What degree sure. of obstruction has to be? Has, does there have to be an yes, optic nerve in order to cause an APD? So, uh, so typically it's pathology to the optic nerve itself. Now, whether that's optic neuritis, which can be one of the leading signs in multiple sclerosis, whether it's, we call it disc edema because we, we look at the optic nerve, whether it's disc edema or if it's if, uh, through a lumbar puncture, inch, elevated intracranial pressure has been deduced, papilledema can also cause it. Um, if there is an infarct in the optic nerve, if there's something major like a central retinal artery occlusion, so either an optic nerve pathology or a dense macular pathology. Those are really, basically if you see an APD, something major is going on. But not a vitreous hemorrhage. But not a vitreous hemorrhage, yes. Yeah. You will still get enough light. Get enough light. Get it, absolutely. You won't get, with just a vitreous, that's a great question. The most, with, the most densest cataract will not cause an APD. So it's really just the optic nerve and a dense macular scar or dense macular lesion like central retinal artery occlusion. Yeah, so. And feel free to interrupt me at any time. Um, otherwise, it's not going to be beneficial or helpful. Okay. So the eye exam, and this is probably the, ex if you can get this far, I think that's fine. That's all you need to know. If you don't take a look at the back of the eye, that's totally fine. That you don't have to take a look at the back of the eye. But, so basically how we do our exam is the lids, lashes, lacrimal system. So we'll start there. We'll start there. We'll see if there's any blepharitis. And blepharitis is basically um, little deposits of little waxy deposits of mebum, which you see on the lashes. The conge and the sclera are they injected? Are the conge red? So basically, when you look at the patient, either just generally or in the slit lamp, is the conge injected or red? Or if they just had some trauma, is there a laceration? Is there a cut in the conge? The conge is the clear membrane that surrounds the sclera. The cornea, looking at the cornea, the clear shell, the outer shell that covers the eye. Is there an ulcer? And I'll show you a picture of an ulcer later. Is there an abrasion? Is there a laceration? Now, the definition of a ruptured globe is a laceration either the cornea or the sclera, or both. So just because you have a laceration in the conge doesn't mean it's a ruptured globe. And typically with ruptured globes, we do like to get a CT of the orbits, a one millimeter thin cuts, coronal and axial views. And the reason why we are really, really insistent on the one millimeter cuts, it seems like, why do you want that? Because the eye, uh, the front to back, antro to posterior is only 24 millimeters. So if we get, you know, the trauma two and a half or five, then I've actually had cases, actually last year I had a couple cases where we actually missed a metallic foreign body on the, on the thicker cut, but found it on the thinner cut. And it was a, it, you know, and you know, that was something that, that we have to have. So that's why we always request the thin one millimeter cuts. Then you move on to the anterior chamber, which is defined as the space between the cornea and the iris. So the thing that gives you that sort of dome. And you check for cell and flare. And that's, I know a lot of people have difficulty. I have a slide on cell and flare also later. 
And if you ever see me or any of us in the, in the uh, ED, just bring us, we'll show you how to check for solid flare. It's actually really fun. Um, the iris, <laughs> I know, it doesn't sound fun. Um, the iris, is it small? Is it meiotic? Maybe they're on pilocarpine for treatment for narrow angle glaucoma. Is it fixed and mid-dilated as you see in angle closure glaucoma? Or is it a blown pupil? Is it a large pupil? Do they have a third nerve palsy? And then the lens, you can just look at somebody's pupil and you can see, is the lens clear or does it, or is the pupil clear or does it look white? Is there a cataract? Um, and then this is more into what we do, which is looking at the retina, the back of the eye. Um, and then, you know, you see you've got the optic nerve, which is, like we talked about, pathology in the optic nerve causes um, an APD. And you've got the fovea, which is the center of the macula. So you've got 90% of your cones and rods within 5.5 millimeters of the center of the fovea. So most of your vision is right here. So if you have scars or you have things going out way out in the periphery, it's not really going to affect the center of your vision, unless it's either clouding the vitreous or it's affecting the macula. Now I'm just going to go over a couple common eye problems we see. So I just showed you a normal retina. Anybody want to guess what type, of, what type of disease this person may have? Diabetes. Diabetes, good. So <laughs> this, this person has proliferative diabetic retinopathy because we can see the new vessels right here. This is a large frond of neovascularization here. We see a frond of neovascularization over here. We see a, what looks like a, an evolving vitreous hemorrhage here. So this is a small vitreous hemorrhage, but... Uh, you know, once these things get really bad, we've had occasions where the entire eye can be full of blood. It can be a dense vitreous hemorrhage. Um, so this type of person will typically need laser. So this will, this is obviously, um, this is usually not need an emergent consult, but anybody who comes in with diabetes with vision loss should consult anyways. And um, I just want to comment that I have friends in, actually my girlfriend in, uh, she's at Cook County and the ophthalmology service uh, uh, she calls is not as good, so I think we're better, but I, al <laughs> I also, ha because they actually don't come in that much, but I also have to comment that uh, you guys are really sharp. Your emergency medicine residents are really sharp when it comes to the eyeball, because, uh, you know, she's a senior in emergency medicine, and I don't know if she's, she's up to as speed with as you guys, so. Um, no, I mean, it just, and it really depends on, on your eye department, so I think it kind of goes both ways. I think you guys are strong, but I think we're strong too. So, um, okay. And anybody want to guess what hey, this Robbie. is? Robbie, in, yeah. the, in the community, if you don't have, you know, here it's academic. So, you see diabetic. Well, we may not see that, but we yeah. suspect that. Routine. You can have them follow up one day to the. Yeah, within within one. Yeah, I would say one one day. Even a, even a week out is fine. Even a week out is fine for a, for diabetic retinopathy. Um, and I'll talk about things that are more pressing too. Anybody want to guess what what this is here? Uh, it's not papilledema. One guess was papilledema. So this is, this is a picture of an optic nerve, and it's an optic nerve that's fairly cupped out. So it's actually a picture of advanced glaucoma. And it's really tough for people to understand what glaucoma actually looks like. like. If you have glaucoma, what does your vision look like? Well, here's a picture. Here's a picture when you have advanced glaucoma, you typically lose a lot of your peripheral vision and you typically only have your central vision, and that's typically just from your macula. You're, having, you're getting macula-sparing central vision, that's what you got, so advanced glaucoma. So typically, someone comes in on drops like Lumigan, Cosopt, Alphagan, they've, got, they've typically got glaucoma. And that's, again, a routine follow-up, again, unless it's angle closure glaucoma, neovascular glaucoma, which is glaucoma associated with diabetes. 
Um, so those are a couple things that we, we see routinely. Um, and I'm just going to talk about some tips on the slit lamp. So um, on the slit lamp exam, one thing you want to do is you want to ensure that the oculars, and let me show you what the oculars are, those are these two little eyepieces right here, there's actually a knob which turns them um, left and right. You want to make sure that th those knobs are set to zero, because that gets rid of a prescription. If you're taking off your glasses and your prescription is minus three, then you want to dial that in. But most people either wearing glasses, contacts, or have naturally good vision. Um, and so sometimes I come in and it'll be set to like plus five or minus two, and I don't know how you how you're able to see <laughs> any. I, I don't. We're that good. Or that good that you can accommodate that much. Um, and then I come in and then I set it to zero and then you know it's like whoa we we can actually we can see now. You know, so, it's, so that's really key. That's number one. The second thing you want to do is you want to make sure the pupillary distance minus sixty one and a half. You want to make sure your people are distance, and you just have to grab the two knobs there and just kind of move them back and forth. That's about it. So, and the slit lamp is a whole hour talk, so I won't go too much on that. But those, if you get those two things, you'll be able to see the eyeball. If you know one is off by plus five, you're going to get, you're not going to get stereopsis. You're not going to get stereo. So, um, and then you want to set it to the slit. And you know, I know there's a lot of things to turn and stuff, but really just these two things, the snob up here and then the, the oculars, if you can get those right, and then just align, the, align this, um, the swinging arm with the stationary arm here, you'll find. You don't have to do anything much more complicated than that. So, Okay, so now I'm going to talk about um, a little bit about vision loss. And I've kind of interspersed it a little bit with some case vignettes um, of cases you might see in the ER or that we've seen in the ER here at UCI. Okay, so transient visual loss. Someone comes in, they're like, oh, hey, doc, I had like five or six episodes of just temporary vision loss just for a few seconds, went black, but then it came out, came back. Well, one of the most common things to think about is papilledema. And I'll go over a whole list of things that cause papilledema, or what we call discodema in a minute. If something is few minutes, they may have amaurosis fugax, which may be caused few minutes to 10 to 60 minutes, which may be caused by a plaque in their carotid artery. That's actually one of the most common. It may be caused by hypertension. So in, in, oh, or it may be, they, may be, uh, they may be having some microvascular disease. So that person will likely need a carotid ultrasound. Um, they'll need um, a, uh, uh, they won't need a stroke workup, but they'll need a hypercoagulable workup. And um, typically ESR and CRP also to rule out giant cell arteritis. So disc edema, which I talked about earlier, um, there's a lot of things that can cause disc edema. And you don't know it's papal edema, again, unless you've got an MRI and you can see a lesion in the brain, or you've got a lumbar puncture, which tells you that, um, you know, that you've got an elevated uh, intracranial pressure. So tumors, hydrocephalus, pseudotumor cerebri, which is something we see very common. That's a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, any type of hematomas, subarachnoid hemorrhage, AV malformations, <coughs> abscess, meningitis, encephalitis, basically any type of major lesion um, in the brain. Okay, so let's start with the case vignette. Um, all right, I'll just, uh, this is a lot of text here, but so chief complaint is um, headaches and transient double vision for six months. Uh, the HPI is a 31-year-old obese female presenting to her eye doctor with headaches, transient visual obscurations, which just means her vision kind of goes in and out, goes in and out. Reports hearing a ringing sound, pulsatile tinnitus. Um, she's noted to have bilateral optic disc edema. MRI scan is done normal. MRV is done normal. Um, she's diagnosed with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, referred to neurology. 
um, she um, lumbar puncture is done and the opening pressure is 50, mil 50 centimeters of water. Um, she started on Diamox and encouraged to lose weight. She continues to have headaches and I'll, in the interest of time I'll keep moving. But Basically her eye exam in the past um, at a past ophthalmology clinic was totally normal. Past medical history is significant for obesity and depression. Medications consistent for Diamox, she's already on Diamox. Family history is non-contributory. Social history, non-smoker. Uh, denies any alcohol use. Here's what her optic nerve looks like. Oops. So what's the diagnosis? I already gave it away. Pseudotumor. Pseudotumor, that's right. Yeah. So here you can see this is grade three papilledema, and there's basically five different grades. So you can see um, I showed you a, pi a picture of a normal optic nerve earlier, but this you have blurred margins, you have vessel obscuration, which means the artery and the vein. The veins are always the thicker ones, um, are obscured by the nerve border, and you have this, uh, you have an elevated feel. And you can see this actually with a direct ophthalmoscope. You just turn, tune down the lights and you just try to take a look. And basically what you do is you have the patient, if you're looking at their right eye, you have them look at your right ear because the nerve is nasal, so it'll sort of torque the eye so that you look, and that'll help you out. So again, if you're looking, whatever eye you're looking at, have them look at that ear. So you're looking at their right eye, have them look at your right ear. You're looking at their left eye, have them look at your left <coughs> ear. So, um, okay. So there's a big differential for pseudotumor from hypercoagulable states, venous sinus thrombosis, endocrine disorders, nutritional disorders, I won't go in too much more with that. But um, the bottom line is the key signs and symptoms to look for are the headaches, the blurred vision in and out, the pulsatile tinnitus, which is the whooshing sound or the ringing. Some people have a ringing sound. And pain behind <laughs> the eyes, some people have plus or minus, and double vision. Those are kind of the, the main things to look for. And the main things we would get is, so we'd get an MRI to rule out because pseudotumor is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we'd get an MRI to rule out other causes, such as uh, venous sinus thrombosis. We'd get a lumbar puncture to check. And typically, greater than 250 millimeters or 25 centimeters water is our, is our kind of cutoff. So. And again, the treatment for pseudotumor is weight loss. So we typically advise 10% weight loss from the baseline. And we follow these patients in our neuro-ophthalmology clinic. And we typically give them Diamox. And the Diamox dose that is, is, is therapeutic tends to be um, tends to be at least 1,500. So sometimes we'll, we'll have patients come in and they'll be on only 1,000 milligrams of Dimox a day, and that's just sub-therapeutic, so we'll bump them up to like 1,500. Um, okay, so that's, that's one example um, of visual loss. Question. Yes. So, tinnitus. Yes. I was unaware was associated <laughs> with pseudotumor. I don't know. I ask is that whenever a patient complains of pulsatile tinnitus, I roll my eyes either accurately or just in my head. <laughs> 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 I'm great. Now I have to get uh, an angio study of this person's neck because I'm always thinking that, that it's some sort of vessel injury. Uh -huh. I am the neck. So you know, I, I, I can't. I can't, I can't explain, to be honest. I've actually asked Dr. Crow, who's our neuro-ophthalmologist, that same question, and we've all, and he, he doesn't know how to explain it either. But um, the pulsatile tinnitus with the headaches, the headaches and the vision obscuration, those are the two most important things. The pulsatile, you know, those are two key things to look for. The pulsatile, and of course, the young, obese female, history of vitamin A uh, usage. And there's like a list of endocrine disorders and things that, that put you at risk for that. But um, 
but good question. How, how seriously would you consider pseudotumor cerebri benign intracranial hypertension in the skinny person? Um, uh, it, it mostly obese. And the other thing, I didn't, just in the interest of time, I didn't mention the epidemiology, but it's the, the ratio of females to males is about 9 to 1. Uh, the ratio of, I don't, but I know for sure, uh, it's definitely highly correlated with, with obese people. If it's a skinny person, it's a little bit less likely. But if it's obese, young female, almost a trigger, trigger for that, yeah. Um, in the ER, uh, here we see a lot of trauma. There's quite a bit of trauma. Um, you know, and we get a lot of eye trauma too. So there's a lot of uh, reasons for visual loss and trauma. And I'm sorry, I'm switching gears a little bit, but um, so eyelid swelling, eyelid swelling can compress the cornea, causing astigmatism. Corneal irregularity, you can get corneal edema from trauma. Hyphema, which basically means blood in the anterior chamber. Um, I think I have a picture of hen, uh, hyphema later. Ruptured globe, I have a picture of a ruptured globe later. A traumatic cataract. So a traumatic cataract typically occurs from either a blunt trauma or actually an intraocular foreign body going through the cornea, going through the iris, and hitting the lens. We just had um, a patient last week with a traumatic cataract. Lens dislocation can often occur with trauma. So ba basically means your lens is just moving. Uh, commotion is some, it's just some swelling in the retina. You don't have to worry about that. Retinal detachment, which a lot of you have caught on ultrasound, on B-scan ultrasound. Uh, vitreous hemorrhage, which you can actually catch on ultrasound also, and I'll kind of go, go through the difference between a retinal detachment and a vitreous hemorrhage. Uh, traumatic optic neuropathy, this is one of those more unfortunate cases. Um, typically, it ends up in the patient being NLP, which is our word for blindness, no light perception. Um, and that's when someone gets a, a direct blunt trauma to directly to the optic nerve in a certain angle. And there's really not much we can do with that. That's kind of a, you know, a sort of a do not resuscitate type of thing. There are some uh, studies in the literature which have shown that IV solumedrol um, which was, uh, it was studied in animals, has shown to have kind of a marginal benefit in traumatic optic neuropathy, but we have actually never done it. And then CNS injury, again, uh, strokes, for example, can cause homonymous hemianopsias. Um, yes? Do the traumatic cataract and the optic neuropathy, does it cause the acute right away after trauma? Yes. Yes. Now, traumatic cataract is something that can be treated surgically by remo removal of the cataract, which is the lens a cloudy lens. Traumatic optic neuropathy, typically, uh, typically there's no treatment for that. It's really just the patient, has right patient has symptoms right away, right away. And um, the cataract develops, develops instantaneously, instantly. It's a crystalline lens and suspended by zonules. As soon as anything hits the lens, it causes a cataract, whether it's a metallic foreign body, whether it's a, a non-metallic foreign body, anti -foreign. It's different, of course, than the way we think. I've thought about cataracts mm -hmm. in the past. Cataracts in... Ninety-nine point nine nine percent of them, the non-traumatic ones, which are ninety-nine point nine nine, will be chronic. And I have pictures of cataracts too, and I'll show you the different types of cataracts. Um, um, okay, so then, um, so time course, so this post-traumatic visual loss. So all of this is instant. All, all of this, um, all of these sources of vision loss are instant, whether it's swelling or cornea ruptured globe, instant, obviously, CNS injury. Um, okay, here's some more causes of instant. Um, pain loss, so a CRAO, a central retinal artery occlusion, which you can think of as sort of a stroke of the eye involving the artery, and a CRVO, we also explain to patients, is a stroke of the eye involving the vein. Now, the CRVO, you can actually recover from. You can get treatment, you can get laser, you can get uh, injections to the eye to 
these injections don't hurt. We always tell people, you know, injections to the eye, they get, they get afraid. But um, ischemic, optic, ischemic optic neuropathy is something that can cause sudden uh, painless visual loss. And there's two major examples. One is non-arteritic, and the other one is arteritic. Arteritic is also known as giant cell arteritis or temporal arteritis, which most people have. And that is usually associated with jaw claudication, with headaches, with polymyalgia rheumatica. NAION, which is non-arteritic, is typically associated with hypertension, with diabetes, with cholesterol, with things like that. Um, ocular ischemic syndrome, such as just having, you know, the first branch of the carotid artery is the ophthalmic artery. So having simply a stenosis of the carotids will cause you to have, um, we had a patient who had chronic inflammation, chronic uveitis in the eye. We couldn't figure out what was going on. We did all the tests for um, for every disease we couldn't figure out, we finally did a carotid ultrasound. We said that the patient has carotid stenosis. A vitreous hemorrhage. Vitreous hemorrhage is something we see very often here at UCI, um, especially with our, with our population, some of whom um, doesn't have as good access to health care and, and has typically really uncontrolled diabetes. And that's why it's really key to know if the person has diabetes or hypertension. Because if someone says, I see red blood spots in my eye, most of the time it's, it is actually a piece of blood floating in the eye. And it's still appropriate to call us, of course, but it's good to, you can also do a B scan and see blood kind of floating around. Retinal detachment, someone has flashes and floaters. Flashes is really the key. Floaters, almost everybody has floaters. A floater is just a vitreous detachment, which is just a little tiny ring in the vitreous. If someone has flashes, that's almost always a key for the ophthalmology resident fellow attending, whoever the ophthalmologist, to come in if someone has persistent flashes. How does the patient describe that? They say, we have, they say we have flashing lights that don't go away. Just flashing, flashing, flashing. If there's persistent flashes, the ophthalmologist has to come in because that means there's traction on the retina and they have to rule out a retinal tear. Because a retinal tear, if not treated, can lead to a retinal detachment. And the way I describe it to patients is the retina is sort of like wallpaper in the back of the eye. If you have wallpaper here and if you have a small tear, that's okay. We can sort of laser it off. We can weld it off by laser. We can weld it off. But if you have, if that keeps going untreated, that retinal tear, that wallpaper will fall down or will, will slide off and you'll get a retinal detachment and then you can, you know, your, your prognosis is going to be a lot worse. How common is it to have retinal detachment or tear without flashes? Um, it's, it's more rare. You can have it or maybe someone had a flash and they couldn't remember it, but if they have curtains coming down over their vision, then that's, that's an obvious sign of a retinal detachment. Or if they have a lot of floaters, that's another sign that it, they could have a retinal tear. Either way, I mean, I think you guys have always called, you know, pushed the button at the right time. And um, I think, uh, you know, it's all, if, if in doubt, just call us. Just always call us. So better be on the safe side. So if they go out and, you know, practice outside and they come in the hospital, then they get the scan and they found that they should have retinal detachment. Exactly. Good question. Okay, so now here's a you know instead of here, here's an easy way. If the vision is good, and they've got, they're missing, you can also do confrontational visual fields, and they say, oh, you know, I'm missing the suprotemporal part. I'm missing this part. I can't see this part up here. But their vision is good. Good means 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050, 2060. It's generally macula on. Macula on just means that the macula, which is the center of the retina, is still attached to the choroid. It's still attached to the blood supply. If their vision is count fingers or hand motion, it's usually macula off. Now, the studies vary, but typically 
the prognosis does if someone is a macula on then that's a stage one emergency they need to have some kind of treatment by a retina specialist right away either they need to have a gas bubble injected into their eye the gas bubble will then tamponade the retina back or they need to go to the operating room depending on the circumstances depending on how many and that's up to the retina doctor but um, if some if someone is macula off Again, if their vision is very poor, count fingers or hand motion, and you do a B scan, you see the retinas up front, uh, the retinas you know completely detached. Then you want then you want to get them to the retina specialist. You want to get them to surgery between seven and ten days out. In other words, there's no change in prognosis per the research studies uh, within the first seven to ten days. Whether you do it day one or you do it day seven, so that gives you a little bit of leeway. Now, I've had cases here at UCI where something was macula on just by the fovea, just by the tip, and it became macula off. Um, so, so sometimes time, time is, of course, of the essence. There's um, a really good video online that Chris Fox did showing the ultrasound images <coughs> to help you distinguish macron from macron. Yes, yeah, and, and um, there's also another website called Ophthalm, I think it's Ophthalmic Edge, and there's a lot of videos that play, and it's nice to view those videos, but um, I'll, I'm happy to go over it with, with anybody anytime. Um, so those are kind of the two major intraocular pathologies um, that can cause sudden painless visual. Uh, stroke, you guys already know, hemanosaminopia, methanol poisoning, poisoning, which can cause a uh, cherry red spot, um, and giant cell arteritis, of which you guys are already experts at. Um, okay, so here's, um, here's a case. Uh, okay, and, and feel free to stop me anytime <laughs> if I'm running over. Here's an 81-year-old male with sudden painless vision loss OS, which means left eye. Uh, the patient described a sudden black spot in his vision that spread out over his complete visual field over a 15-minute time frame, drove directly to the optometrist. Vision in the right eye, which is OD, was 20-40. Left eye was terrible, light perception. Um, it, was noted, uh, it was noted that the patient had a normal fundus examination at the optometrist. Um, the past medical history is significant for coronary artery disease, etc. He's on aspirin, plavix, nitroglycerin, basically he's a vasculopath. Review systems, no jaw claudication, etc. All right, so let's go to a little bit more. So um, here, uh, best corrective visual acuity when checked by the, or by the ophthalmologist was 20-30 in the right, hand motion to the left. Uh, the pupils were greater, uh, greater than two and a half. Um, I don't know what LU means, but... Uh, <laughs> I got this from another another place. Uh, relative afferent pupillary defect. He had a um, he had a visual field defect. Um, his extraocular movements were full. He had cataracts. And let me show you his fundus examination. Okay. So anybody want to say? And the pathology is right here. <laughs> anybody want to guess? That's right. Central retinal artery occlusion. So this person had a. Central retinal artery occlusion, so he's got a cherry red spot. Um, the differential for a cherry red spot is um, Tay-Sachs disease, Neiman-Pick disease, um, and there's some other sphingolipidoses. So the treatment for a, uh, for a central retinal artery occlusion, there's not really much, to be honest. I mean, there's some, uh, there's some talk in the literature about doing an ocular digital massage, meaning just you know, really pressing down on the eyeball and letting go to see if you can dislodge the clot. Um, you know, that really hasn't shown to be any, any, um, any benefit. Carbogen therapy, which is a mixture of uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide, like literally breathing it in the bag, that's thought to 
uh, breathing, breathing in and out of a paper bag, start to dilate the vessels to dislodge the clot. Um, long story short, little if any vision is regained. Um, and the patient just has to be basically work, has to get a stroke workup. All right, let's go to another uh, case vignette. Here's an 82-year-old but, but male. it's important to do those interventions in the emergency department because people can really this when they lose their eye. And so you want to have done many or all of those because sort of a kitchen sink cover your behind. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah, you, you will want to have... Um, done a workup because, you know, you, they're, they're obviously at risk for the other eye, they're at risk for having a stroke. You can think of it as a stroke of the eye. They're at risk for having a stroke. You want to check an EKG for AFib. You want to check PT, PTT. You know, you want to check an echo also, see if there's, um, you know, a shunt. All right. Um, okay, here's another case. Here's an 82-year-old with complaints of acute decreased vision in the left eye. Patient has a history of macular degeneration in both eyes. Uh, left eye is better seeing eye, but vision has gradually become hazy and dim. Um, six days prior to this presentation, he underwent a, an uncomplicated cataract surgery in that eye, in the left eye. Um, basically, he's got a, a known history of macular degeneration. So his right eye is 2400. It's already bad. And his left eye, um, six days previously, was 2080. The rest of his history is pretty much... Normal. Now he presents to the emergency department. His visual acuity in the right eye, which is already his macular degeneration eye, is 2400. And now in his left eye, where he had surgery six days ago, his cataract surgery, is now light perception. He's got terrible vision. Um, the intraocular pressure in the left eye was 10. It wasn't measured in the right eye. Uh, the pupil is not easily visualized in the left eye. Um, the external and anterior exam, the right eye, he's got a normal... Um, PCIOL is just a lens, an intraocular lens. And the left eye, he's got conjunctival <coughs> injection, he's got corneal edema, he's got a hypopion, which is a, a layer of white blood cells in the anterior chamber. Um, on the dilated fundus exam, uh, when you try to look at the back, and the right eye looks fine, the left eye you can't even see, there's no, there's no view. Um, when you do an ultrasound, you see, in the left eye, you see highly mobile vitreous opacities. There's no retinal detachment. Okay, so I'm going to show you a picture. All right. So here's what his eye looks like. Anybody? He's six days out from cataract surgery. Anybody want to take a guess as to what? Yeah, good. Endophthalmitis. So, so typically these are very painful. Vision is poor. His vision is light perception, which means he can just see light. That's it. His conj, his conj is very bright red. And conj is very bright red. That immediately tips you off to an infection. Very bright red conj. The cornea is hazy. If you looked for cell flare, you'd see like, well, you know, there's there's so much there's so much cell flare. There's so many cells. There's actually a hypopion. You'd see, you know, there's a ton of cell. There's obviously so four plus cell flare. Up on the bottom, that's the that's the hypopion. Yeah, that's the collection of white blood cells. So he's not in good shape. Um, so diagnosis is endophthalmitis, as you guys correctly discussed. Um, and endophthalmitis is very, it's not very common, but it's about one in a thousand to three in a thousand after cataract surgery, um, depending on how things were done. And this is just a list of some of the organisms here. P. acnes, staph, strep, those are the most common. Um, and endogenous endophthalmitis typically occurs in people who have heart valves. Um, okay, so treatment, obviously call the ophthalmologist. Uh, if vision is hand motion or better, they'll typically do a tap and inject. So they'll inject fortified intravitreal antibiotics into the eye, obviously, and they'll typically admit with IV antibiotics. So that's where 
um, you guys come into play and consult infectious disease. If vision is worse than hand motion, like in this case, the patient will get a vitrectomy surgery. So um, those are a couple cases. Um, I've also got a lot of different pictures of pathology we see, and I'll just talk briefly about each. Um, here's a picture of a central retinal vein occlusion. You get that sort of thunderstorm, bl uh, blood and thunder, dot blot hemorrhages, intraretinal hemorrhages, cotton wool spots. A CRVO should be thought of as a stroke and should receive the stroke workup. Um, and typically this occurs in patients with hypertension, with high cholesterol, with uh, you know, some kind of uh, hypercoagulable disorder, typically. All right, and I've got a next slide. So this is just sort of a hodgepodge of different slides just to kind of expose you to more things. Uh, here's a vitreous hemorrhage. So this is what a vitreous hemorrhage looks like. And again, it's very common in patients with proliferative diabetic retinopathy, basically uncontrolled diabetes. Here's, a, an, again, a frond of neovascularization. And vessels, uh, neovascularization tends to lead to vitre, uh, vitreous hemorrhage if it's, if it's not treated. And typically our treatment is laser. So what we do is we typically laser off the periphery, causing, causing intentional ischemia in the periphery so that blood is redirected to the center, to the macula which is the most important part. And you guys have always uh, all seen this. This is a retinal detachment, um, which you can definitely see on B-scan, and occasionally um, you, know, you can also see it with a, with a direct ophthalmoscope. Okay, so I'm going to talk now about gradual vision loss. We've talked a little bit about sudden vision loss, vitreous hemorrhage and retinal detachment. Being. So, here, so here are more of the gradual vision loss. So cataract, like we talked about before, almost all cataracts are, are gradual. Refractive error, like glasses and contacts. If someone has a change in prescription, well, that's, yeah, that's an obvious one. Open-angle glaucoma, that's really a chronic disease um, that can be managed in the clinic. Age-related macular degeneration, that can typically be managed in the clinic as can diabetic retinopathy, unless it leads to a vitreous hemorrhage, in which case. And ischemia is just basically lack of blood supply to the, to the macula. That needs to be checked in the, in the ophthalmology clinic. Clinically significant macular edema, that's just swelling in the retina that comes from diabetes. So now I'm going to go over some pictures of cataracts. Here's a nuclear sclerosing cataract, which is the most common type of cataract. Probably 70-80% of people have this type of cataract. It's a clouding of the lens that occurs right in the center. And there's three different proteins in the, in three different crystalline proteins in the lens. I don't know why certain people get nucleosclerosing as opposed to other. I just know how to recognize them and how to treat them. Cortical cataracts, um, people typically describe problems with glare, and it makes sense because they've got this spoke. They've got these, uh, this spoke kind of going around from the periphery, and when light goes directly at them, they'll complain there's a lot of glare. So like driving at night, there's a lot of glare coming from an oncoming traffic. That's usually a cortical cataract. Uh, posterior subcapsular cataract. This is just a, a cataract that's sort of in the back of the capsule, the lens. Everybody's lens sits in a capsule, and people with this typically have trouble. Oh, I'm sorry. People, people with this type of cataract uh, typically have trouble with reading. But these are just the three types of cataracts we see often. Um, okay, is the here's treatment, treatment different. The treatment, uh, the treatment is not very much different. It's, uh, it's, it's just a little bit different in your surgical approach. Not, not in terms of you know, referral, or, but you can sort of tell based on the kind of symptoms they have. Um, okay, so we'll go over a couple more vignettes. I know I'm starting to run low, low on time. Um, all right, next case is a uh, patient complains of vision changes in the left eye. 76-year-old uh, 
patient established um, with our clinic, complains of an existing central scotoma, which means a blind spot, in the left eye that was discovered with an Amsler grid. An Amsler grid is just a grid of straight lines going up and down and side to side. Um, we use that quite a bit. Denies flashes, denies flashes, floaters, pain, etc. Most recent vision was 20-25 in the right and 20 over 160 in the left. Medical history, she's got cholesterol, she's got thyroid, history of colon cancer, uh, family history, mother had glaucoma, social history, she doesn't smoke, and she takes medications for those systemic diseases. Um, the ocular history, um, the best corrected visual acuity, so using glasses or pinhole, was 2025 in the right, so pretty stable, but it was worse in the left. Earlier it was 2160, now it's 2200. Everything else, for the most part, is normal. Um, her pressure was 22 and 23, but I think she was squeezing a little bit. Um, so squeezing can, uh, when you're checking pressure with the Tonopen, make sure you give your patient adequate uh, preparacaine drops, because if they squeeze, that retropulsion you'll get from squeezing will actually cause the pressure to be artificially high. Um, and, uh, the pinhole correction, yeah. I don't know if, okay, well, I, I don't have a picture of a pinhole here, but um, a pinhole, it's called a pinhole occluder. It's basically sort of an L-shaped plastic device, which you kind of cover and has. Okay, thank you, Dr. Langer. You can, yeah. I think you actually made your own ones. I have to, because stuff's always missing. Sometimes. <laughs> All right, so anybody want to uh, care to guess what the diagnosis is here? This is kind of a tough one. Nice. Good job. How do, how do you say? How do you say? Oh, just based off the history, and they're looking at the, you know, the drusen. Yeah, exactly. So drusen is typically a sign of dry macular degeneration. And if you have this bleeding right here, which is a subretinal hemorrhage because it's behind the retina, that's usually a cause of wet. So her di the diagnosis of this patient is is, evol is basically wet macular degeneration that has evolved from a dry macular degeneration. And just to give you um, guys uh, a little bit more on both dry and wet macular degeneration, in dry you see drusen, which are those little yellow spots, which are basically protein deposits, but you don't have leaky vessels. And in wet, just think of it, you have leaky vessels, and these leaky vessels then in turn lead to fluid in the macula, the center of the vision, and lead to blurry vision. Now this, of course, can be this can be handled in outpatient setting, um, and this is just another diagram showing wet. You see a little bit of fluid, perifoveal fluid, and then uh, dry, where you see these drusen, these spots, which you can sometimes see. Treatment is typically injections of anti-VEGF uh, medications like Avastin or Lucentis. Um, laser and also uh, a multivitamin. Basically, I just tell patients if they have dry, you got to use UV protection, blue blocking sunglasses. You got to use a multivitamin, and then I also um, I give them uh, I give them an Amsler grid, which is a grid with lines going side to side and up and uh, side to side and up and down. And the reason is when they look at that grid, or you can give them a checkerboard. If when they look at that, if uh, their macular degeneration is evolving from dry to wet. They'll start to notice that some of the lines are curvy or twisty. So that's a good, that's a good pickup. Okay, so now we'll talk a little bit about painful vision loss. So that was all painless. Painful vision loss, um, so acute angle closure glaucoma. You guys have seen that, I'm sure. Optic neuritis. Patients with optic neuritis typically have pain on eye movement. Pain on eye movement. Uveitis, and this is where looking for cell and flare comes into play. 
corneal ulcer, the definition of a corneal ulcer is an infiltrate in the cornea, and I'll show you a picture later so you know what I'm talking about. Basically a white spot. Uh, a ruptured globe, you guys have seen, endophthalmitis we talked about earlier, and then there's something called corneal hydrops in patients with keratoconus where the cornea is shaped like a cone. Um, they're at risk for basically getting a rupture in one of the layers of the cornea, which can lead to a high amount of pain, and it's a little bit more rare, but it's something to watch for. Okay, so here's angle closure glaucoma. Um, uh, typically, patient has a cloudy cornea. Um, they have a fixed mid-dilated pupil, so even if you shine light, and the reason is because, <coughs> literally because the iris is, is stuck in the angle. The iris is stuck in the iridocorneal angle. So um, uh, this, and it's, uh, one, one thing to watch for is it typically occurs in patients with very shallow anterior chambers. That's one way to tell. And, it, and the prevalence tends to be high. The highest prevalence is actually in Inuit Eskimo. I don't know why. But Inuit Eskimo, it's, it's, it's actually one of our board questions. Who has the, yeah, believe it or not. And um, East Asians tend to have a very high incidence of narrow angles and also anatomically narrow angles, which put them at risk for angle closure glaucoma. So a lot of times we'll do a little glaucoma laser in their iris because it'll be sort of the safety valve. Kind of a, if you think, I just explained to them, the eyes, in your case, and if they have a narrow angle, is like a pressure cooker. And if, you know, if, this, if the top seals off, well, then the pressure in your eye can build up and it'll damage your optic nerve. So we typically do a glaucoma laser. So you guys have seen, I'm sure, angle closure glaucoma, vision's down, it's blurry, cornea's hazy, the eye is injected red, they might have headaches, nausea, vomiting, and their pupil's just fixed, fixed and dilated. So treatment is, of course, call the ophthalmologist. You can give 500 milligrams of IV Diamox. Um, you know, you can also give mannitol. I forget what the dose is, but... Um, you know, that's something that, that you can look up. That's but the most important thing for emergency medicine is these patients can present with GI symptoms, so don't forget that the glaucoma can be the cause. The number one uh, incorrect presumed diagnosis uh, in patients who have this, I have experienced, is stroke. Say, headache, vomiting, and one of the pupils is dilated. So the pupils dilated because they have increased intracranial pressure, and yet they're awake and talking to me. That that subtlety is kind of lost on the EMS for sometimes. Yeah. So just to emphasize what Kanik said, sometimes the vomiting is the predominant symptom, and they don't even bother to tell you about the eye, especially if there's a language barrier. So just kind of yeah. vomiting. And we actually had a patient where I don't know it was a, I don't know a little bit of a delayed diagnosis until we start thinking, why is this old lady vomiting? We looked at her eyes, it was obvious once she looked. And then she said, does your eye hurt? She said, yeah. She was marking her guts out, and that was what bothered her. Mm. What's the pressure that... So typically... Yeah, so typically uh, pressure by tonopen, anything, I mean, we don't send anyone home until their pressure is below typically 30 to 35. If 30 to 30, it's, it's kind of a gray area, 30 to 35. Now, if they have neovascular glaucoma, where, and it's, and I don't expect anybody to be able to differentiate that, but that's basically when vessels actually grow around the angle and seal off the angle. There's no way we're getting that below 60. We can't get it below 60. We just have to get them to surgery as soon as possible to get a glaucoma, glaucoma tube in the eye as soon as possible. 
and get an anti-VEGF medication like Avastin or Lucentis to try to get rid of those vessels. So, um, so really, the, if it's if it's greater than thirty, I would definitely call ophthalmology for sure. And if it looks like angle-closure glaucoma, I would call ophthalmology again. The fixed mid-dilated pupil, the red eye, the cloudy cornea. If you just look at one eye, it looks cloudy, and the other one doesn't look cloudy, and you know patients either throwing up, like Dr. Langdorf said, has a headache, especially a unilateral headache uh, because of the V1 distribution. Uh, you know, basically people complain of pain around their eye or the forehead or even, even up to back here. Um, okay, here's, I think this is my last case, and I'm going, feel free to stop me at any time. I'm going a little bit over. Um, okay, here's a 48-year-old African-American female with complaints of photophobia, tearing, and eye pain in both eyes. She has HIV, and she's got a one-month history of gradual photophobia, tearing, eye pain. Um, she was started on antiretroviral therapy a year ago. Her um, CD4 count was less than 50. Now it's above 250. She's doing better, but she's got this new eye complaint with redness and eye pain in both eyes. And she's photophobic, which means she doesn't like the light, really light-sensitive. No fevers, chills, sweats, no joint pains. Um, no other complaints, no recent exposure to illnesses. She's past my cholesterol, she's HIV. A TB test one year ago was negative, but she doesn't have a new one. Canada um, control was also negative, no previous ocular problems. Here's her vision, it's 2050 in the right, 2040 in the left. The pupils are irregularly shaped. I'll show you a photo in a minute. No RAPD or same as APD. No afferent pupillary defect. In other words, there's no problem with the optic nerve or dense macular problem. Pressure is normal, extraocular movement's normal, um, visual field's normal. The back of the eye uh, looks pretty normal, and there's no swelling in the back of the eye. The front of the eye, the patient has injection, so the conge is red, it's injected. Ciliary flush, which means just around the cornea, there's some redness, which is a tip-off or something. There's two-plus cell and flare in both eyes. OU means both eyes. And there's large keratic precipitates. What that means is um, just collections of inflammatory cells that are sticking to the cornea on the corneal endothelium. And there's posterior sneakyae, and I'll explain what posterior sneakyae are in a minute. So here's what the eye looks like when you look under the slit lamp. So there's what we call mutton fat, so there's these thick, um, there's these thick inflammatory cells which are sticking on the inside of the cornea. There's posterior sneakyae, which means basically the iris has scarred down to the lens. So you got basically, long story short, the pupil is not round. If the pupil is not round and it's sort of jaggedy like this, that means, and you see that like, you know, when, the, when you shine a light and the pupil doesn't constrict these certain areas, that's a sign that there's posterior sneakyae. Anterior chamber um, is cloudy, so there's cell and flare. So here's, here's one tip. If you don't know how to check for cell and flare, if the front of the eye looks cloudy, can almost deduce that there's solid flare. And there's episcleral and conjunctival injection, which means that they're surrounding the eye, it's red. Anybody want to guess or venture a diagnosis? Episcleritis. Uh, it's not episcleritis, because episcleritis alone would not explain this sort of inflammation in the front of the eye, uveitis. the cell flare. Yeah, uveitis, good job. So it's uveitis. Uveitis is the diagnosis, and there's two major types of uveitis, but at this point you don't really have to know. There's granulomatous, which typically has these th very thick clusters of, of inflammatory cells, and then, uh, you know, granulomatous cells. And then there's non-granulomatous, which, which don't have these thick clusters. And there's a big differential for granulomatous uveitis, and I'll just go through a big list here. But her diagnosis ended up being TB uveitis. Whoa. 
so she has TB uveitis. There's Yes. That's right. That's right. How I don't. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but just in my limited experience, in my anecdotal experience, it's pretty good. If someone, if someone does not have photophobia, in other words, you shine the light, they're like, okay, you shine the light, they're fine. You do the slit lamp exam and you're turning it up, and you know, and they're still fine. Uh, you can probably say that uveitis is lower <coughs> on your list. At least it's lower on your differential. So, but if it looks cloudy, and if you see posterior sneakage, this is a really key thing right here. You just have to, all you have to do, you don't even have to know what these things are. If the pupil looks funny and jaggedy like this, what it means is the patient has had chronic inflammation, and this inflammation has led to the iris uh, becoming scarred down to the lens. The lens is right here. You see the pupil through the lens here and eventually the develop a cataract also. And if you shine a light to the eye, the pupil will constrict a little bit, but it'll still maintain this sort of jaggedy shape, this irregular pupil shape. That's, if you, right when you see this, you can be like uveitis. UV, either you have uveitis now, or you've had uveitis. Um, and so they typically, um, so again, for uveitis, this whole workup needs to be done, and these are all the causes of granulomatous sarcoid syphilis, VKH, sympathetic ophthalmia, which is basically a disease that occurs when one eye is injured, um, and, uh, and uh, so, yeah. The uveitis, is it um, the pain is from nerves innervate the cornea or from the so it's, it's actually from the iris. So the uvea is defined as the iris, uh, the iris, the ciliary body, and the choroid. The choroid is just behind the retina. So typically it's from the iris and the ciliary body. That's what's actually causing the photophobia, the iris and the ciliary. Yeah. So preparacaine doesn't work so well. It's sort of, it's sort of trick, that's a great question. It I mean, it numbs up the cornea, and um, a little bit may penetrate, but, you know, I... It, it doesn't work so well, but it'll at least make them, it'll make them feel that their cornea is numb, so they'll sort of feel numb here, but internally they'll still feel the pain. Mm -hmm. On the outside, it's sort of, yeah. But the Exactly. So that's, ex ex and that's one of the treatments, exactly. So, so one of the gross decision points for us about whether to call the ophthalmologist is you know that if, if the propericaine completely relieves the patient's symptoms, you know that the cornea is the, is correct. the culprit. That's right. And then all you need to do is deal with cornea issue. Correct, correct. Internal issue, then it's something internal. That's actually a great, um, that's great. And I've only got five or seven minutes, I think, so I'm almost done here. I know I've gone over, but um, yeah, that's actually a great point that Dr. Langdorf made. Um, if preparacaine relieves, even if somebody has a corneal ulcer or a corneal abrasion, if preparacaine relieves the pain, you've diagnosed it. You, Is what? It is the ulcer. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You still need to. You still need to call opto for the ulcer. Yeah. And 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 Doctor, uh, I'm sorry, Koenig. Heinig. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, if they have photophobia, uveitis rockets up your list. If they don't have photophobia, uveitis rockets down on your list. In the opposite direction. Okay. And treatment for uveitis. Now, by this time, you've 
called up though and they're like okay we need you to order HLA B27 you're like what the heck is going on right and then you have uh, you know you have us we're like yeah we want to check for Lyme TB and herpes and you guys are just looking at us like what is going on what are these guys doing where are these guys getting the list with this crazy you know and Meanwhile, you're doing your chest compressions and everything. We're, <laughs> we're trying to talk to you. We're like, we need to check this guy for... <laughs> we need to check him for leprosy. We need to check for brucellosis. You know, but... Great question. So the first time, typically we don't. The first time, if it's a recurrent, episodes two through N, we don't. We do. But uh, if it's the first time, if it's a mild, if it's a severe case. Now, if it's a, so you can have three types of uveitis. I'm not going into that here. But basically, front of the eye, anterior, intermediate, and posterior, three types of uveitis. But if it looks like a benign, relatively straightforward uveitis, first episode, we won't do a workup. Okay, so treatment for uveitis is, like Dr. Hennig said, it's um, a cycloplegic, a midriatic, to sort of relax the ciliary body. And we use scopolamine, you can use cyclogil, you can use atropine. All of those work almost equivalently, except that they have different half-lives and different durations. Predforte, which is our main ammo, that's 1%. Oh, here's, a, here's another clue. If you're ever in doubt as to what the concentration of an eye drop is, it's almost always 1%. <laughs> it's almost always one percent, yeah. And and you're like, is it one drop or two drops? You almost always give one drop each time. And and here's the reason: the tear lake, the eye can only hold seven microliters. Each drop is fifty. Each drop is fifty. So each drop, whether uh, you know it's a, it's an artificial tear drop like refresh, or it's Pred Forte, or it's Cyclogel, it's fifty microliters on average, fifty microliters. Um, and so you're getting seven times the amount. So, you know, sometimes we give a patient a drop, it hits their cornea, and half of it bounces up. They're like, oh, it bounced off. Like, no, it didn't. It, it, you know, enough, <laughs> enough went in that you're okay. So it's always one drop. It's never not one drop. It's always one drop. It's almost always 1%. And if you give bromonidine, I think, is either 0 0.1, 0 0.15, or 0.2, it doesn't matter. Just whatever is, whatever they're in, what we do in the clinic is whatever their insurance company covers. We do. So it, do, it doesn't matter. They're all almost equally effective. Um, sometimes in uveitis, and uveitis is kind of a fun one. I have a picture on cell flare uh, next. Um, uh, treat their secondary glaucoma, treat their pressure, treat the underlying disorder, which you were able to deduce from those labs you worked up. And sometimes periocular injection, that's for the ophthalmologist. Okay, how do you look at cell and flare? So what you do is you take your slit lamp, you make it the smallest possible beam, which is basically a one millimeter by a one millimeter beam. You t make the smallest possible beam, you shine it directly on the iris, and then you pull back a little bit. Because when you shine it directly on the iris and you focus it on the iris, now this assumes your oculars are set to zero, your pupillary distance is fine, you've got either your glasses or contacts, your at least 20-30 vision yourself, and both eyes, you've got good stereopsis, and you know, and everything's going fine, you focus it on the iris, and um, then you pull back a little bit. And when you do that, the light is going through the anterior chamber. So it's going... At an angle, right? At an angle, exactly. If you go straight on, your slits don't separate. Correct. You have to be... An you, you have to be... Slit and your iris slit to be 
That's exactly right. You have to be at an oblique angle. And the way I like to describe it to patients, the way I like to describe it to people is, uh, you know, when you go to a movie theater and everything is dark and you look up, you look straight up and you're watching a movie, do you ever see the movie beam going through? Well, that beam is flare. That's what that beam is. And do you ever see, like, dust particles kind of going through the movie beam? I don't know if you ever see. Well, that's cell. That's how you tell cell and flare, right? Now, there's 1 plus, there's 2 plus, there's 3 plus, there's 4 plus. Don't worry, that's for us. That's, but if you want to really do, there's actually um, SUN, it's the standardization of uveitis nomenclature. There's actually a way you can actually count what we do, is we count the number of cells. So this will be like 1, 2, 3. We'll actually sit there and count the number of cells. So this is actually a key one, because you will see uveitis. You'll see a lot of uveitis. And um, uveitis is often associated with HLA-B27 diseases. Anybody ever heard of HLA-B27? Yeah, so there's a mnemonic. I, I forget what, maybe you guys can help me, but JWPAIR is the mnemonic I use for HLA-B27. J-W-P-A-I-R. J is for, uh, I think it's juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. W is Whipple's. P is psoriatic arthritis, A is ankylosing spondylitis, I is inflammatory bowel disease. There's two types of inflammatory bowels, you guys know, ulcerative colitis and uh, what's the other one? Crohn's, Crohn's disease, yes. Blank out here. Uh, Crohn's, people with Crohn's disease tend to get more severe UVIDs. Um, and then R is uh, reactive, reactive arthritis. Writers now called reactive arthritis. Okay. Yes. Maybe just focus on the pictures you have left. Yeah. So the flare is just that whole beam. You see this here? That's the beam. It should be black, but instead you, you can actually see this beam here. And I'm sorry, I just got a few more minutes here. Um, okay. Uh, here's Anybody can spot the corneal ulcer here? Right here. Here's the corneal ulcer. Typically, you'll see a white infiltrate. You'll see injection, which again just means uh, inflammation of the conjunctiva. Um, just going through pictures here. Here's a here's a ruptured globe. Um, this is actually not that bad because <laughs> as ruptured globes come, this is not a bad. This is a uh, this is a limbal. This is uveal prolapse here. So we've got part of the uvea. Uh, coming through the sclera at the perilimbal region, which is the weakest part of the eye, the perilimbal region, and just behind the recti muscles is also a weak point in the eye. This right here is also a ruptured globe, but it's in the cornea. This person has what's called iris incarceration. So the iris is the iris is plugging up the wound and is is um, okay. Now. Um, I think this is my I think this is my last slide here. So f um, now every once in a while, one out of a hundred, one out of two hundred. Does anybody know what functional visual loss is? Yeah. So basically, yeah, so so vision loss. You know, basically they're quote faking it. They're quote they, you know they're faking it. So this this typically has to be done with uh, has to be a diagnosis of occlusion. You want to get a neuro ophthalmologist. 
There's different tricks. Compare distance vision with near vision with the correct correction. Um, there's something called an OK endrum, and I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. We do fogging, which means we make the four-opter very foggy, and then we play games with the dials, and we're able to sort of tell with it. And then a tangential visual field, and I'm sorry I don't have a picture, but I'll try to describe it. Basically what we'll do is we'll have one person cover one eye, let's say cover your left eye, and look with your right eye, stand one meter away from a wall. And what we'll do is we'll say, draw the outer border, or use pins here, and mark the outer border of what you can see from a distance of one meter. Then we'll have the patient step back to two meters. And we'll say, hey, how f what can you see? And if they only mark those same pins, you can immediately tell they were faking. Because when they step back, because the visual field is a funnel and not a tunnel, because it's a funnel and not a tunnel, their visual field should have doubled or, or increased correspondingly based on how they step back. So, And here's uh, an OK drum, which sort of looks like a barbershop thing. And, and um, uh, it's just a natural nystagmus response. So if someone is getting at least light perception in their eye, or I'm sorry, I think it's the cutoff is